what happens if uh, your company is going to go and make a big acquisition, great technology, they have this IP that is wonderful and will harness your company to grow and grow and grow. But what happens if they've been breached already and that IP has actually been stolen and replicated you know, behind the scenes? Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by SoftCat, the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on the detail. Welcome back to another episode of Explain It. I'm your host, Zach Abbott, and over the next 30-ish minutes, I'll be challenging our panel of experts to take a different area of the IT ecosystem and, of course, explain it. In this episode, we're going to be talking about cyber espionage, what it is, how it's impacting organizations, and what does the future threat landscape look like? Joining me today to discuss this is Adam Lucas, Softcat's Chief Technologist for Cybersecurity, and Zeki Turedi, the EMEA Technology Strategist at CrowdStrike. Zeki, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. We have got a great show coming up, but before we start, I thought we'd play a little bit of Room 101. Do you know the premise? Familiar? I am. Familiar, Zeki? Yeah, a little bit. Cool. Okay, well, just to make sure. Anything you like in the world, that well, anything you don't like, something you want to get rid of, we're going to put it in room 101 for you. So I'll hear one thing from each of you, what it would be and why, and then I will pick who goes into room 101. So we will start with Adam. Personally, I would put oysters into room 101. They are basically little sea snot creatures that I don't think have any value being in anyone's diet. Sea snot. Nice. Okay. Uh, Zeki? Not going to lie, I quite like oysters, so... Uh, <laughs> this could be a difficult podcast for us. Yeah. Oh, already. Tension already, yeah. tension. Um, mine's a bit more complex. I've been flying a lot recently, and I've realised there's an uptick in uh, games people can play in the back of the seats and just keep hitting the uh, the screen, which is not great when you haven't slept in about uh, 48 hours and you're trying to get a bit of, bit of kip. So, um, yeah, games on uh, airplane seats. Oh, tough, yeah, because if you sort of broaden that out into more like people being annoying on public transport <laughs> then oh yeah I'll go, go with that one as well. I'm, I'm leaning towards Zeki on this if I I'm mean honest, at some Adam. point we're just going to say people aren't we <laughs> <laughs> yeah no good uh, uh, executive decision made uh, Zeki wins that sounds infuriating especially if you haven't slept for that amount of time thank you so uh, sorry Adam oysters going to stick around but um, I can't wait for that person to just crack open some oysters behind you on the plane and <laughs> kick you in the back of the seat <laughs> Uh, thanks for playing, guys. Let's uh, dive into the world of cyber espionage. So, Adam, what is cyber espionage? Cyber espionage is a specific type of threat whereby generally a sophisticated or nation-state threat actor looks to break into organizations for the purpose of stealing intellectual property. And how does it differ from things like cyber warfare or cyber terrorism? Uh, cyber warfare is an often thrown around term. It's quite hyped at the moment, given the geopolitical tensions across the world and the recent application of cyber weapons or, or cyber attacks within those campaigns. Cyber warfare is generally defined as some as an attack against uh, a government or government entity that breaches into the physical world, so actually impacts the the physical environment versus just data. Uh, and lastly, cyber terrorism it's kind of similar, I guess, but cyber warfare is generally performed by countries you know, individual nation states that we can point a finger at and take to court. Um, cyber terrorism is often same types of attacks, but carried out by smaller groups who have individual ideologies who are looking to either further or defend their ideology. 
So Zeki, I'd be interested in your view on this. It's getting more and more difficult to differentiate, I think, given how much of our day-to-day life is now digital. You know, even the most basic of things uh, requires digital systems to work. Often people talk about cyber warfare requiring a kinetic element or requiring some sort of crossover into the physical world. Do you think that is something that that definition will last the test of time? Or do we think we'll probably come back and say, well, actually, we'll reflect on this in 10, 20, 30 years and say, well, actually, that was definitely the start of cyber warfare. We just didn't know about it. So that's a really interesting point. Majority of time, we kind of look at it based on intentions, but the reality is what the outcome may be may not have been the original intention. So a whole critical national infrastructure being taken down based on a, you know, again, this is theoretical, but based on a a ransomware attack, that is very, very much possible. We would probably class that as cyber warfare, yet the initial intention may have just been for a little bit of disruption. I guess like a lot of things, the collateral damage or the unintended targets of something potentially focused at a nation state can often mean that the lines are blurred in in terms of the impact to businesses that might be associated or even just be sharing the same network segment as a target that is a piece of CPNI or piece of government infrastructure. Absolutely correct. And it's the other part of that is also we can't really or history has shown us that we're not very good always at controlling cyber attacks. So once they're out in the wild, you know, actually they replicate, maybe they have uh, self-replication properties or or actually the vulnerabilities that are used or the exploits that are used to, to perform a certain type of attack get out into someone else's hands. And although the first attack might have been designed for a very specific target use case, you know, that exploit gets out into the general wild, so to speak, and actually the everyday run of, sorry, everyday run of the mill criminal gets their hand on it. And all of a sudden that thing is now being used against average businesses. So we're seeing that dropping of state level attacks into the everyday run of the mill. Yeah, you, you've literally hit a nail on the head there. That's so example, you know, Eternal Blue, we, we, we all know about this. I'm sure, again, this is one of those words that as a probably a listener, you're probably quite fed up of, but it's we've got so much learning from it. It is something that was, you know, nation state capabilities leaked on the internet adopted very quickly and guess what people are still being targeted with it today and unfortunately it's still highly effective okay so we've spoken quite a bit about how cyber espionage can affect the public sector but how will it impact the private sector so the other private sectors often will come into contact with this in probably one of two ways in my head Um, it will be firstly as collateral damage so actually they will either be in the supply chain of a government entity or alternatively a supplier to a government entity and that would then open up that sort of sphere of organizations that could be impacted by this the second way is that the expectation that these attacks will slowly drop down the food chain and drop out of state sponsored into sophisticated criminal groups and then we'll start to see those types of attacks hit private organizations The second one is actually also then relates to certain organizations that have intellectual property. And that's where we have seen this start to really move out of cyber warfare, but into cyber espionage that does start to hit the individual business a little bit more frequently. Most organizations trade incredibly heavily on the data they create. Maybe that's designs, maybe that's customer lists, maybe that's movements of certain individuals around the world. And that information is highly valuable to a sufficiently motivated nation state who's looking to build or create an industry that doesn't exist in their country. Over the years, we've seen large amounts of data stolen from specific manufacturing sectors, um, allowing certain organizations to undercut prices by not having to invest in R&D and actually obtain very similar designs and only manufacture them for far cheaper. Now, one of the really challenging things we have 
I guess as a world, and this is a much bigger question, is as globalization and the free market continues to evolve, as consumers, sometimes we benefit from obtaining things cheaper because somebody didn't follow the rules. And we have to ask ourselves that question of actually, do we want to pay more money to get something done properly rather than actually somebody just saying, oh, cool, I took a MacBook somehow. I took it home, I took it to pieces, I copied it, and then I manufactured it for half the price. Some people will say, well, actually, I'll go and buy the half price one. And that becomes more of a question of as a, as a human race, is that acceptable behavior and what do we want to happen? That's a really good question. The unfortunate thing is this has actually been happening for quite some time. You know, most notably when we talk about economic espionage, we always kind of refer to China. We saw the agreement in 2012, which should have seen China decrease this type of activity. The reality is today we're seeing it. It's bigger, it's louder than it has ever been before. Yes, it may not be coming directly from groups affiliated with the Chinese government, but it's definitely happening on behalf of the, uh, the Chinese nation. Now, what you've also got is the reality that a lot of other growing countries trying to be part of the economic table who have saying maybe not done the initial research development, haven't got the actual initial intellectual property, wanting to become a dominant player in a number of different markets. And they've realized based off what's happening with China and other countries that guess what? Cyber is a really easy methodology to utilize, to learn, and actually can get hand of, uh, you know, hold of quite a lot of good data really quickly that can boost your capabilities economically. So a great example is, you know, we've seen Vietnam t uh, target automotive industries across Asia to kind of boost uh, their own capabilities. And we're starting to see uh, lesser known nation state adversarial groups using this as a method or looking to build their capabilities for potentially using this method in the future. I think that becomes interesting, especially when you then consider the the university sectors as well. One of our largest exports in the UK is our, is our research and the universities that perform the great research that enables us to develop new ideas and, and to grow the UK economy. They're traditionally or typically not the most sophisticated or haven't had the largest investment in cybersecurity. And we're really having to see that start to change as organizations get attacked by very sophisticated threat actors who are looking to break in and obtain PhD research and get that early mover advantage in a new area. Literally a few months ago, we saw an adversary group that we call Wicked Panda, which we kind of attribute back to Chinese um, uh, nation state targeting Hong Kong based universities for that exact reason, because unfortunately, universities do not have security budgets. They do not have security operation teams. But guess what? They have huge amounts of funding and they're literally leading you know, the R&D for some very, very interesting uh, sectors. So just talking about maybe not that example specifically, but maybe more generally, what, what would we typically see as a as the threat model, as the um, the sort of TTPs we would expect, sorry, the targets, techniques and procedures that we would see from those typical threat actors? The reality is what we're starting to see is kind of a shift away from malware-based capabilities. What we're seeing, especially from more of the sophisticated groups, and what I mean by sophisticated groups, I'm not just saying the best nation states, we also see a lot of you know good criminal organizations focusing on the on these kind of techniques as well. So they they want to just masquerade as the administrator. 
no longer can we believe or have the the trust of thinking, hey, they'll drop some malware and guess what? We'll know about it straight away. There'll be some signs of something weird and wonderful happening in our organization that will tell us about the incident. The reality is the sophisticated attacker, you know, the nation state, the targeted attacker or, or the criminal actor want to be as quiet as possible. We're seeing a huge increase of them utilizing the tools that you're using every single day, your administrators are using, huge influx of utilizing legitimate credentials to gain access and then be able to move across laterally. So really, you know, the tactics and techniques, the procedures being used are the same techniques and procedures that your administrator is using, which makes it a bit hard as a defender. So living off the land and using those tools means that you can no longer go and look for a hash that you know is going to be bad or malicious actually that hash is going to match actually a rdp which is meant to be there like it's not malicious there's there's not a bad version of rdp it's just someone's inside your network they have legitimate credentials and they're using that to move maybe around the network or to obtain access yeah so so a hash like a you know an indicator of compromise and ioc is still really useful but the reality is if you're just using iocs and you think that's going to tell you uh, and stop an attack as it's happening, it's not. It's great for historical analysis. They're really useful. They do play quite nicely into our kind of detection pipelines. And, you know, simply if we know it's bad, we can block it and stop it. That's great. But the reality is we need to do a lot more to be able to investigate, understand if we're looking to, to stop the type of intruder, the type of adversary we are dealing with today, it needs to go a lot past that. Given that what we've just spoken about is more organizations than ever could be facing a cyber espionage threat from a sophisticated threat actor, one of the key questions I know customers will ask me is, well, if I'm going to be a target of that level of sophistication, it really means I need to increase my investment, whether that's in technology or in people. How would you recommend they go about trying to communicate that to a senior business leader to get them to realize the level of attacker that could be potentially inside or attempting to target that business? That's actually very, very, it's a good question on multiple levels. So my example would be, my, my feedback would be, you know, we need to kind of understand what the actual attacker looks like and what our threat landscape actually looks like. To do that, we need to first of all, understand our business in the best possible way. It sounds simple, but the reality is an organization could be extremely multifaceted, not only from the network level, the kind of applications we're running, but most importantly, you know, what we're actually giving to our customers you know, what the organization is providing as an output. By understanding the supply chains as well in that actually provides a lot of visibility into what your threat landscape could look like. That's actually quite an important piece because if you don't understand what your supply chain looks like as, as a consumer, but also as a someone actually creating or manufacturing goods, you could have huge amounts of vulnerabilities or, or you know, state actor interest, but never knew about it. But what that allows you to do is it allows you to go upfront. So if you're having the conversations with the board, going to have conversations with your C-level executives, you understand what your landscape looks like. You also understand what the threat looks like and making sure you understand the threat actually allows you to put the right technologies, the right people, the right processes in place to have your best foot, you know, best foot forward when dealing with any type of attack. I think um, a lot of people talk about how do we get security into the boardroom? And I think exactly that methodology is, is how you make sure that cybersecurity is a relevant topic amongst any business decision, because without having visibility of potentially new acquisitions or new market areas a business might be entering or even services, 
how are you meant to properly inform the board about the potential change in threat landscape and what that might mean for investment, what that might mean for cost, what that might mean for risk? Because without that information, the board's going to look at something and say, that's a really good business area to go into. We want to, we want to manufacture fighter jets for the government because they're really expensive. We can make loads of money. But unless somebody goes in and goes, well, actually, by doing that, it means that X, Y, and Z thing is going to happen. We're now going to be on this person's radar, that person's radar, and we now need to invest £100 million in cybersecurity. Now the board can factor that into their decision and decide, actually, is that still a valuable and profitable business area we want to enter? Or alternatively, should we charge more money for the service because we have to account for the fact we need all this security? So we need to charge £200 billion for this plane because we need to cover the cost of the additional risks that that brings on to us. You also mentioned uh, m and like merging acquisitions, such an important, crucial part of a business, yet security is never usually involved. Now, what happens if uh, you know, your, your company is going to go and make a big acquisition, great technology, they have this IP that is wonderful and will harness your company to grow and grow and grow. But what happens if they've been breached already and that IP has actually been stolen and replicated, but you know, behind the scenes? That's something that's not actually part of the initial conversations, but really should be because we've seen it publicly. Unfortunately, it happens quite often. We may not always hear about it, but that should be a crucial part of you know bringing security into any core business decision. Now, we don't need to say that a security member needs to be part of the board or or part of you know board of directors. That may not always be necessary, but having the ability to call on security as as when you're making those decisions is extremely important. Okay, so what role would you say governments play in defending uh, organisations against cyber espionage, Adam? So I think they have a, a major role to play. They are here to defend the UK or the national interests of us and our allies and partners. And cyber espionage is something that directly impacts the UK economy and our ability to operate at a worldwide level, so an international level. We've seen a real investment from the UK government over the past 10 to 15 years, creating new organizations that were traditionally focused on military protection, becoming now pushed out into more civilian applications. So specifically thinking about GCHQ, creating NCSC and really investing that and actually now coming out and be very proactive uh, with organizations, helping them to ensure that they have the right base standards to defend against, maybe not the most sophisticated of cyber espionage, but actually making sure that we're not just an open door, that actually there is at least some level, level of sophistication required. And it's like most elements of risk management. You can't defend all risk. So it's about accepting who am I prepared to get broken into by? And that's kind of true in life, isn't it? You know, we have a an army that is so large, but fundamentally we know there's countries that we can go up against on our own. But we're never going to be able to do that because it's just not, it doesn't make sense. You know, actually that's just not capable for the UK given its size. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest, I think what the NCSC have done is an amazing job. It's definitely a hard job and they have really brought on not only vendors, you know, from the security space, partners, but also getting really close to the actual, you know, organizations and the enterprises across the UK. We've seen frameworks like CBEST and the new TBEST coming out, which again is allowing people who really know what they're doing to test the frameworks, test the networks of critical infrastructure on a continuous basis. And the outputs are there really, really maturing those businesses to make sure that they're able to defend themselves against any type of adversary. But on the other side of the fence, we've also actually seen a number of different state actors being indicted publicly either be it from the UK government itself or working with European entities or or our, our friends in the US. 
And I think that's a big change. And so really actually putting faces to names here and going, yes, this is actually a problem. It is happening. And you know what? We know about it and we're going to you know, publicly oust you. And, and that's kind of involving the conversation, isn't it? At least from a geopolitical perspective, it becomes politics rather than sort of hidden shadows. Um, and it's something that can be debated and something that's put on the table when negotiating trade deals or relations with other countries saying, well, you know, we've attributed actors in your country breaking into UK owned businesses, taking intellectual property. So we're now not going to sign that aid agreement or we're now not going to sign that trade deal with you or we're going to apply these sanctions or terms with you. Exactly. And we'll talk before about, you know, how do we make this issue more public with the board? Well, guess what? We're not keeping this secret anymore. This is not something that only the practitioner understands and can see. This is actually something we're publicly talking about because it is important for every single individual. It's important that the, the board member understands what the security practitioner is up against. And guess what? We can cite some uh, public references back to the, the UK government. Let's say we've been a victim of cyber espionage. It's done. It's happened. What are the next steps after that? How, how do you recover from that? So... If you were in a scenario where you were hit by uh, cyber espionage, the incident management process is going to be broadly similar to any standard incident management, cyber incident management process that you might already have today. You know, first understanding the scale of the breach, then containing it, then remediating the, the, the any uh, identified issues, and then bringing the business back online. I guess the bit that becomes more challenging is that if you were hit by a truly complex or sophisticated threat actor, then the level of the level of intrusion by that threat actor might be far greater than what you'd anticipate from a standard criminal actor. Um, and that mean that might mean that the level of um, forensics and or um, level of trust that you have in your remaining platforms needs to be um, sufficiently lower. Because if a threat actor is that well ingrained in your environment, whereby they could have obtained rootkit access or you know they might even got down to something in the hardware level at the, the most sophisticated, you kind of reach a point where you might just have to set the whole place on fire because you really just cannot trust that platform to be ever be secure again. So you have to really at that point engage professionals to understand exactly what's happened. You know, also um, notify any uh, regulatory bodies, but also get in contact with, with uh, GCHQ or um, NCSC and actually seek help from those government level organizations because they will often have far more information than you will have about who was involved and might even in certain, sorry, certain circumstances reach out to you. Yeah, I mean, in, in these cases, your legal team is going to be your first people you call, you know, especially all your, your outside counsel. If you don't know the processes with that, make sure you do, because it's the number one stage of incident response. Kind of going really back into what you were saying about, you know, remediation, it's unfortunate it's not always true, but in some cases you, you could have a, you know, intruder that's been there for quite some time. Remediation is not simple. Unfortunately, at CrowdStrike, what we see on quite a frequent basis is bad remediation jobs. So, you know, companies who, who had an incident, you know, a year ago, two years ago, feeling that they've been, you know, resolved it correctly, had a remediation plan put in place, and then two years later realized that the threat actor never left. Remediation is really difficult. And it's not something that happens in a week or two. It can take years. And that is quite scary for some businesses. And it kind of goes down to, you know, if we don't want to have to be dealing with remediation that takes a couple of years, we don't want to have to be rebuilding whole networks because that stuff's complex. Um, you know, we don't want to have to be doing coordinated kicking out of the actual adversary because if that's not done properly, guess what? They know your network just as well as you do. In some cases, even better. They will come back. And 
if that's not done or, or in a coordinated fashion with expertise, we're going to have problems. And this is where, you know, going back again, it's so important to actually focus on defense and detection. You know, it's actually easier to kick them out um, as it's happening than it is to kick them out, you know, a year later. So we've been through quite a bit now about how cyber espionage can affect organizations today, what can be done in the remediation process, things like that. Um, Zeki, where do you see the future of cyber espionage? What Are we likely to see an increase in the number of high threat incidents? So yeah, that's a really interesting question. And that doesn't take away the fact that, you know, targeted attacks and you know, espionage is very serious and it does happen to a lot of organizations. But as part of CrowdStrike, we actually gather quite some interesting information on this. In 2018, we saw roughly around 75% targeted attacks. So targeted attacks being, you know, sophisticated nation states or targeted intruders and around 25% criminal actors, you know, uh, targeting organizations. Same time in 2019, we actually saw that it completely change. So we saw 39% of the activity being actually targeted attacks and 61% being e-crime. Now, a majority of people will probably say, hey, maybe nation state targeted attacks has actually decreased. Well, actually it's been exactly the same. So we're seeing the roughly the same amount of nation state activity as to 2018. It's just that actually e-crime has massively, massively grew. And what's worrying here is this growing education of the criminal actors. They've learned off the targeted attackers. They've learned how they have been so effective. And basically they've grown with that kind of capability. They've, they've learned off the, the more targeted type of activities taken. So if you kind of look at criminal actors a few years ago, they had more of this kind of spray and pray methodology. They'll target as many companies as possible in the hope that someone clicks a button and gets impacted. They've kind of evolved this a little bit. So rather than the second you click on the email, you get a little ransomware note, ask you to pay $100. That's not going to make a criminal organization much money. They realize that if they don't do anything, it just may be launching some code. And then from there, someone accesses the system, understands the business, looks to see what that company is actually doing. If it's a large company, maybe they will start doing some more reconnaissance and move cross-laterally. You know, similar to a target attacker, be very, very quiet and stealthy. Use these same tools that they use as being administrators. And roughly until they get about 80%, 90% coverage, then click the big red ransomware button. Because guess what? Instead of saying $100 to get your systems back up, it's now 10,000, half a million, couple of million dollars. And that's really where we've seen previously APT was the sort of top level word, you know, the advanced persistent threats, but they're no longer advanced. They're just persistent. We've seen that playbook drop down into the average malware authors or, or criminal threat actor group. And we've seen that even here at Softcat, the the expectation that you now just hit a single machine is almost gone. Really lateral movement is almost embedded. It's a key part of what we'd expect to see in any average cyber threat actor now. And that taking of the playbook. And unfortunately the sad thing about this is that almost in the same way with cyber espionage you know, these threat actors can steal IP and then become very good without doing the hard work. Exactly the same thing's happening in our cyber criminals. They're not doing the hard work. They're basically just trailing six months behind the top level actors. 
And one of the great things about our industry is that we are very open and we share information, but often sometimes that does, I think, hurt us because we're sharing techniques very openly about what these threat actors are doing. We're sharing methodologies, we're sharing examples whereby actually if you're a budding cyber criminal, all you need to now do is read Krebs Online and uh, Security News Weekly and listen to a few podcasts and you've pretty much got yourself a pretty good playbook of this is what all the top guys are doing. You know, and maybe you're not quite there, but even if you can imitate 50%, you know, you get yourself to be pretty um, sophisticated level without a huge amount of effort nowadays. Yeah, exactly. So we see it on a, on, a, on a huge basis, a new vulnerability, if it has some kind of remote execution capability, that's going to be snapped up by the criminal organizations within less than 24 hours. And we see that on a, on a regular basis. And yes, it may not be a target attack, but opportunistic which then moves further into your organization, then you know that's going to cause a lot of damage. I'll tell you another naming convention for Room 101 is probably like the zero day. You know, we all, as security vendors, we talk about zero days quite frequently, but the reality is they're not that used that much. Yes, we do get them occasionally, but a lot of these criminal actors and even these nation states are actually using off-the-shelf tool sets. You know, it may be pirated or cracked versions, but the reality is it's the exact same tool sets that are freely publicly available. They're the same tools that unfortunately your red teamers are using, yet they still work. And that's down to that hygiene element, isn't it really? I still see a lot of organizations who allow PowerShell to run any PowerShell code, no restrictions anywhere. And you're just leaving somebody, uh, people say PowerShell is the post exploit kit. You know, it's a full scripting language. It's fully expandable. You've got all of this power inside it. Yet we allow it to just run on everyone's desktop. We have all of these administrator tools that are just left out there from, you know, things like PS exec or whereby you can allow lateral movement very simply. And leaving all of this tool set out there for attackers to use and not locking this down is really making the threat actor's life very easy once they get inside the environment so that they don't need exploits because exploits you only need when you don't have good credentials. If you have good credentials and you have tools that are already there, what do you need an exploit for? Yeah, exactly. And it kind of goes down to this old age, you know, the old age argument of for security to be effective, we have to disrupt business. But actually, it's not actually true. We can allow the business to still do what they do. But what we have to do is put extra effort into security. We no longer in this situation where we can be passive and expect it to be fine because, you know, we can't block PowerShell scripts all the time. We would love to, and the perfect network would have you know, PowerShell blocking, but guess what? There's a strange script that has to be run on every single system at 12 o'clock on, on an evening that does collect some information that goes into a core system that is fundamentally important to your business. And unfortunately, the person who developed it 10 years ago has left, and we don't know what it actually does, but it works and it needed it to be there. In a lot of cases, do we even have visibility into that in the first place? Really, I think the importance for what we need to do is actually realize that, yeah, we can't be passive. We need to actually have visibility into this activity. We need to actually understand what it's doing, the reasons why it's there. And once we have that visibility, have that hygiene, that actually puts us in the perfect opportunity to be able to identify things that become suspect, things that don't look right in our organizations. And that's really where strong, mature enterprise networks are able to defend themselves from things like sophisticated criminal actors or sophisticated nation state actors is when they're able to really, you know, we, we talk about the needle on the needle stack and the needle factory. You know, that's really about understanding what each needle looks like and then being able to pick out the anomaly. You've both mentioned to some extent that there's like trends between all of the different uh, attacks, threats, styles that you would see on cyber espionage. 
Adam, are you seeing trends in uh, security technology vendors as well that would combat these? The security industry is unfortunately a bit call and response sometimes. So we see trends evolve in the security industry that reflect the threats that we are defending against. I would say the rise in anomaly detection is has sort of been one of the key ones. So moving away from just looking at IOCs and chasing down hashes to starting to look at techniques and TTP, so going up that stack and actually saying, you know, what is the behavior that I'm looking for? There's now so many needles that I can't have a big pile of all the bad needles because actually the pile would be too big. So I need to work out actually what is the characteristic am I looking for? So we're starting to see that become pretty prevalent in most mature security offerings. And that's almost into this macro um, shift we've seen towards moving away from rule-based technology. So where you have to be declarative about what you want and what you don't want into much more of a risk-based approach whereby you have a sliding scale of from um, zero being everything is fine to like a hundred being nothing can happen at all and, and kind of trying to choose something on there that is a reasonable that is a reasonable set, but is no longer a binary decision. It's neither a yes or a no. It's a actually maybe becomes an answer. So that's definitely happening. The other macro elements I'm starting to see as well is starting to see an increased interest in threat intelligence. So as people want to communicate more effectively, both internally to their stakeholders, so to the board members, they actually want to understand who are my threat actors and and what threat modeling have I gone through to understand the likely mechanisms or likely uh, ways that they might break into my organization. So that's probably the second one. Uh, And the last one is I really think an increased investment in incident response and an expectation that the threat actor you might get hit by might not just be run of the mill. It's not just going to be a virus on a machine anymore. It could be something that takes down a whole segment of your business, whether that's from ransomware or alternatively through data breach. So a maturation of the instant response process in a lot of organizations is the other thing I probably see. Taking kind of really, really all those points you mentioned, attackers don't change drastically, but they do evolve. One of the things that we do is focus on collecting the right information at the right time, you know, storing it into a centralized location. So what that allows us to do is use, you know, automated mechanisms like machine learning to go all through that data, look at the behaviors, look for anomalies, and actually very, very quickly able to identify how an attacker has evolved and then put preventative mechanisms back to our customers. You know, anomaly detection is really useful, but if we look at it into a single enterprise or try and baseline an enterprise, we'll never get a right answer. But if we can utilize the crowd, you know, rather than just looking at your business, look at thousands of other businesses and seeing other different behaviors, we can very, very quickly understand if, hey, that is actually just a normal administration activity, or you've installed a weird and wonderful software that isn't very common, but you know what? It does do that weird PowerShell execution, but it needs to do that versus actually this is potentially, you know, an active intrusion. Massively agree on threat intelligence. You know, for us at CrowdStrike, threat intelligence was one of the first things we actually built up as a technology platform. Because simply when we were building out our, our endpoint protection capability, we understood we need to know what the threat actor looks like. We need to know what tools they're using, how they're using it, and most importantly, you know, what and who they're actually targeting. Because that information is crucial when you put it back into from a detection and defense and mostly from a, a preventative functionality. Okay, so we've had a look at what cyber espionage is, how it affects organizations, and what the future could look like for it, which pretty much brings us to the end. But before we do, Adam, 10-second summary. What is cyber espionage? How can it affect organizations? And what can they do to protect against it? 
Cyber espionage is a specific type of threat often carried out by nation-states as hackers to steal information, generally for the purpose of advancing manufacturing and or other capabilities within an organization. How does it affect organizations? Typically, it's an advanced persistent threat that digs into your environment, understands the valuable data inside of it, and then exfiltrates that out to the threat actor. And what can you do to protect against it? Firstly, understand what it is. Secondly, understand whether or not you're likely to be targeted by it. You know, nobody here wants to, wants you to be chasing shadows, but but do make sure you that's an active decision rather than a passive decision. Third, if you are likely to be targeted by a sophisticated threat actor, ensure that you have an understanding of their techniques, their understanding of their their methodologies, and ensure you have an adequate control layer, so an adequate technologies to detect against that. Finally, ensure you have a good plan should the worst happen. Well, that's it for another episode of Explain It. Adam Zeki, it's been really great talking with you. Thank you very much for your time. If anything in this show has piqued your interest or you'd like to talk to someone more at Softcat about anything we've talked about in the episode, please do get in touch, podcast at softcat.com. Also, make sure you click subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can stay up to date on all episodes of Explain It. Thank you very much for listening to Explain It from Softcat. Softcat.